Well, hey, it's January 24th, uh, 2019, the first uh, Journal Club of the new year. Uh, we're going to be revisiting a topic we covered about three or four years ago, and, and no, almost nobody who was here, who's here today was here then, and I've added several new articles on the topic. It's about an antidote that's emerging called cobinamide, which is an antidote at the time we covered it for cyanide, but now there's been some new studies on hydrogen sulfide, so we're going to add those to the mix. But I figured we'd start off with a little bit of a review of some of the studies that were done, and including a couple of new ones on the cyanide aspect of things. But before we even jump into all that, I think we'd do a little bit of review about how cyanide poisoning can occur. First of all, and I put a little bit of a twist on it with pediatric cyanide poisoning, which is very, very rare, but there was a consensus statement from the European um, tox folks, and I think we're going to start off with that with our PDM fellow. So, Daniela, take it away with your paper. Um, so, this article is titled Pediatric Cyanide Poisoning by Fire Smoke Inhalation, a European Expert Consensus. Uh, published in Pediatric Emergency Care in November 2013. And this is a review article talking about cyanide poisoning. So um, in terms of pediatric acute cyanide poisoning, the most common source is from fire smoke inhalation. And when people think about you know, fire smoke inhalation, people often think about carbon monoxide poisoning, but not so much cyanide poisoning. But in fact, cyanide is one of the main contributors to death due to fire smoke inhalation. So how does this happen? So cyanide is actually released when common fabrics are burned, like um, nylon, silk, wool, or like in plastics, like uh, polyurethane. Uh, some of the other less common sources of cyanide poisoning are from ingestion, so like ingestion of cyanogenic compounds or from like nitroprusside. In terms of manifestation of acute cyanide poisoning by inhalation, it's similar in kids and in adults. So we think about like cherry red skin, respiratory distress, um, neurological impairments like agitation, confusion, or lethargy, um, metabolic acidosis, and also severe cardiovascular effects like hypotension, arrhythmia, and AV block. So even though the manifestations between kids and adults are very similar, there are certain factors that make children more vulnerable in adults. And so these factors include that children have a higher respiratory rate, they have a lower body mass, and then they also have immature metabolism. So in terms of higher respiratory rate, that means that they are able to breathe in more toxic substances when they breathe. And then with lower body mass and the immature metabolic metabolism, that means that a smaller quantity of substance can produce a higher toxicity in children. So if you're suspecting cyanide poisoning, um, it's very important to administer the antidote uh, without waiting for laboratory testing or confirmation. So in terms of antidote, there's actually three types of antidotes available. So one is the um, methemoglobin forming agents. So these are your nitrites and your uh, 4-D-MAP. Um, the second type is sulfur donor, so a thiosulfate. And then your third type is your um, cobalt compound. So your um, hydroxocobalamin and then that your dicobalt editate. Um, and as we all know, uh, we're familiar with hydroxocobalamin, and this is the antidote of choice, and it's because it's the safest and the most effective. But either way, I think we should just go through all three quickly. Uh, so in terms of your methemoglobin-forming agents, so your nitrites and your uh, 4-D-MAP, the way these work is that it oxidizes hemoglobin um, to methemoglobin, which uh, mix complexes with cyanide to form a non-toxic um, chemical called cyanomethemoglobin. Um, but because the amount of uh, methemoglobin is needed to bind to cyanide, this causes a significant issue with oxygen transport. Um, and because of this, there's also no safety data on um, pediatric uses. Uh, specifically for nitrites, as we know, it causes vasodilation and hypotension in a patient who's already sick to begin with. And then for the uh, for DMAP, this can cause uh, nephrotoxicity and then also cause tissue necrosis or phlebitis at the site of injection. Um, moving on to sulfur donors, so your thiosulfate, the way that this works is that it enhances conversion of cyanide to thiocyanate. Um, this is also, um, there's not enough case reports on its efficacy as well. Um, 
the nice thing about this compared to uh, the methemoglobin forming agents is that it's less toxic, but the uh, mechanism is very, very slow um, and it can also cause potential GI symptoms. Um, lastly, for cobalt compounds, uh, in terms of dicobalt editate, um, this can cause severe adverse effects, uh, including anaphylactic shock and uh, ventricular arrhythmias. Um, and lastly, going to the um, material that we are most familiar with is hydroxycobalamin. The way this works is that it binds to cyanide to form cyanocobalamin, which is B12. Um, which is excreted into the urine. So it works very rapidly as an antidote, and then in the pre-hospital setting, it also reduces blood lactate level in patients. Yeah, and they nicely set up, very nice, uh, some algorithms which talk about, you know, how to get levels, but basically, as an adult, uh, we need to treat based on suspicion. So if you have a comatose or moribund child or an adult pulled out of a fire, I think nowadays most places who had hydroxycobalamin available would just give it, and it's actually given in the pre-hospital setting, certainly locally in many, many places around the country you have the ability to give it. If not, it's often given on arrival in the emergency department. So hydroxycobalamin has pretty much replaced the old-fashioned cyanide antidote kit with the nitrite and the uh, uh, sodium thiosulfate, although you still can get sodium thiosulfate independently as an adjunct to it. So what we're going to talk about with um, the rest of the Journal Club is there is a byproduct of hydroxycobalamin that may be a little bit better. So with our first article, James, tell us about this yeah. one. So I got this, this paper, it says um, titled Cobinamide is superior to other treatments in a mouse model of cyanide poisoning. This was published in Clinical Toxicology in 2010. And as the name implies, it uh, uses a mouse model and compares cobinamide to other modes of treatment for cyanide poisoning, which include hydroxocobalamin, or OH, OHC is what we'll call it here, sodium nitrate, and sodium theosulfate. Um, previous to this study, um, looking at cobinamide, they only really uh, looked at it in uh, cell cultures and also sublethal doses in rabbits prior to this. Um, and so as far as materials and methods go, they use uh, the same type of mice, uh, 6 to 12 weeks old, um, and you know, they used all that they were, did everything, you know, ethics were followed as far as euthanizing these mice. Um, and before we go straight into the, the results here, um, I will note that uh, you know they were observed for survival during the first 30 minutes of giving being exposed to cyanide, whether it was inhaled or it was intraperitoneal, um, and they were monitored for the following three days after all afterwards. In all cases, at least five animals uh, were studied per condition. So we'll talk about several different uh, ways they studied this. Um, so uh, to start out here with the uh, with the res going into the results, what they found was the um, lethal concentration of cyanide in the inhaled form was 534 parts per million. Um, and this is when the mice would become apneic and die within 30 minutes. They found the lethal concentration at 50% uh, was um, found to be 451 parts per million, um, which is higher than previously reported in the literature. Um, the previous literature, they thought that this might differ because they were uh, performed both in a different mouse strain and also without general anesthesia. The thought was that general anesthesia uh, appears to decrease toxicity by preventing hyperventilation uh, that occurs in awake animals in response to the inhaled cyanide. Um, they also found that intraperitoneal injection of potassium cyanide lethal dose of 50% was about 10 milligrams per kilogram. So starting first with figure one here, they look at the efficacy of antidotes in the inhaled model of cyanide poisoning um, using the lethal concentration of 100%, so back a couple pages here, and what you'll see is higher cyanide doses, um, at higher cyanide doses you'll see that the cobinamide um, it, you know, led to a 100% survival at just about any uh, inhaled cyanide dose whereas the um, sodium theosulfate, uh, you can see that as you increase the dose, survival goes down, and uh, same goes with the sodium theosulfate and sodium uh, nitrate, so showing that it's more effective than uh, both of those there. Um, 
going on further here, uh, they found, uh, looking at figure two, a lot of figures here, uh, they wanted to more accurately compare OHC to cobinamide, and uh, what you'll see here on the x-axis is the antidote uh, concentration and survival on the y-axis, um, and um, what you'll see here is that the uh, cobinamide, you have, uh, it's more potent than the OHC. You'll see that at lower doses of the antidote, you have higher survival compared with um, the OHC there. Um, figure three, they, and that was about a tenfold uh, more potency is what they, what they noted here. Uh, now if you move on to figure three, um, what you'll see here is just um, they were um, comparing the actual concentration of the cyanide in different various ways of, of comparing the concentration of cyanide. So first they looked at the red blood cell cyanide. And what they showed was that um, the red blood cell cyanide concentration was significantly decreased in uh, CBI um, compared with OHC uh, treated in the uh, OHC. Uh, the serum theocyanite, uh, what they showed here in, in figure uh, 3b, um, is that the serum theocyanate was significantly decreased in CBI treatment mice compared with OHC mice. OHC uh, did not differ uh, when compared to control at all in that one there. And there was in figure 3c here, you'll see there's no significant difference at all. This was looking at urine theocyanate. There's no significant difference in CBI versus OHC there. Um, when you look at that one there. Um, so moving forward a little bit further here, so they also compared uh, CBI and OHC in the intraperitoneal model of cyanide poisoning. This moves forward to figure four here. Um, and what they show in this, this graph here on the x-axis, again, you have the antidote, and the y-axis, you have the survival percentage. They showed that CBI was, again, more potent than OHC um, there as far as the antidote goes. So in the intraperitoneal and both in the inhaled model, it was more potent. Um, so what they noted was that in the, in the intramuscular injection of CBI, so now this is more of a realistic model about if there was some kind of a mass casualty event, you know, we'd have to, intramuscular is the more reasonable route because you can't put IVs in all these people. And what they noticed that uh, some of the animals uh, injected with CBI developed paresis of the injected limb. So they, they hypothesized that the CBI was inducing localized ischemia by consuming nitrous oxide, um, thereby retarding its own absorption. So what they did to prevent that, um, they added sodium sulfite to CBI. Um, sulfide binds to cobalamin uh, with a reasonable high affinity, and they showed that CBI uh, sodium sulfate was absorbed more effectively than CBI. So this is in uh, figure 5A. So if you move on to the, the next page there, uh, you'll see that intramuscular CBI absorbed at a slower rate than the CBI uh, sulfate, which will be in, important in, in reversing this toxicity quickly in a mass casualty event. Um, so uh, figure 5B there just shows that the um, intramuscular sodium uh, sulfate uh, prevented more death uh, than CBI IM alone in intraperitoneal cyanide poisoning. So you can see again 100% survival on the, the y-axis compared to uh, decreasing survival in just the CBI alone. Uh, moving forward to the next figure, figure six here, it looks at the efficacy of CBI sulfite post-poisoning. So um, mice were given the intramuscular uh, CBI uh, sulfate and they before or up to four minutes after a lethal dose of intraperitoneal cyanide was given. And they, sh they showed that CBI sulfate was 100% uh, effective up to three minutes post-cyanide uh, post poisoning there, injection. So, um, you know, you can see as, as time goes on, it becomes less and less effective and in survival for as far as the um, intramuscular goes. Um, so they also wanted to figure out the range. They wanted to check out how, how toxic is CBI alone. Um, and this is kind of denoted in uh, figure seven. Uh, animals were initially injected with 200 milligrams per kilogram, which seemed to be well tolerated. Um, and what they found that at 400 milligrams per kilogram of the cobinamide, um, it, re it reduced spontaneous activity in the mites, which were, was followed by respiratory distress, hunched posture, pyloerection, and ultimately death by 36 hours. Um, and so if you look at figure seven there, you can see that uh, it's, you know, at the, the uh, it's just this, the cobinamide sulfite uh, was significantly more, uh, less, leth less, less uh, toxic compared with just the cobinamide alone. So it seemed that this is the better concoction to go with. Um, 
And you know that's just about everything as far as the results go. So they did quite a few different things here. Um, you know some of the uh, limitations to the study is that you know this is a mouse model, um, and you know they did note that the um, lethal poisoning, as far as um, the lethal dose of 50% for cyanide is not known in humans. Lethal poisoning has occurred in a little bit is about uh, 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram in humans. In mice, they're more resistant to the effects of cyanide uh, with human than comp when compared with humans, um, where their uh, toxic dose is considered to be between two and eight milligrams per, per kilogram. So can't exactly carry this straight over. Um, you know, so some of the limitations so that was one of them there. Um, they also noted that in the parental model, the onset of deaths was very very rapid, um, which left a narrow window for intervention. Um, third, they, this wasn't conducted in a randomized controlled fashion. Um, and fourth, the studies were not blinded, of course, and this was because of the complexity. CBI and OHC are both intensely colored, so it'd be hard to, to kind of show that. So, um, you know, in summary, they showed that, you know, CBI may actually be an agent that satisfies, that, that is a reasonable antidote for cyanide poisoning in both the intraperitoneal and uh, the inhaled form of cyanide. Yeah, this is a very nice paper, and a good uh, review of it is they kind of stepped you through of trying uh, cobinamide itself against the tr traditional old cyanide kit antidotes, the sodium thiosulfate and nitrates, and then against our new commonly used hydroxycobalamin antidote, and then they realized that the cobinamide itself may have some downsides, and certainly a, a ceiling effect where it actually was lethal, and then they substituted sulfite into it to make it more tolerable. And ultimately their goal was to create an IM injection that was usable because you know, if you had a mass casualty incident or an industrial release, you can't go around starting dozens or hundreds of IVs on people to give them hydroxycobalamin, which is the only way you can administer hydroxycobalamin um, currently. So this you know, laid the groundwork. And, and I'll just mention as an aside that all the articles reviewed are in animals, there aren't any human studies in, in cyanide or sulfide, because we can't do that ethically, but we did treat the animals well in that we they all uh, follow the Animal Welfare Act and the Institutional Review Boards in each of these studies um, and um, came up with this. Now, the FDA has a rule that you can't just approve a drug based on small animal studies. It's called the Animal Efficacy Rule, and so you need at least two species, one of which has to be a large animal. Um, in order to get uh, approval without any essentially human use, although you do have to do human safety studies ultimately before it's ultimately released. So um, several of these studies, including the next one we're going to talk about, was done in a large animal model, which was swine, which is felt to be much closer to humans than mice, and we'll talk about some other ones with rabbits and things like that. So tell us a little bit about uh, clobetamide again for cyanide still in swine that we have. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a 2014 article from the Annals of Emergency Medicine um, uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Labarta et al. Um, titled Intravenous Cobinamide versus Hydroxycobalamin for Acute Treatment of Severe Cyanide Poisoning in a Swine Model. So they were looking at this similar, um, this similar argument about hydroxycobalamin, um, the fact that there are some drawbacks to being used, particularly in like a mass casualty setting, and the fact that there is this cobinamide, which molecularly should be a better uh, uh, cyanide scavenger, um, would that work? Um, particularly since there is this IM preparation that might be in existence. But they wanted to test first that it actually worked at all. So this study was based on uh, intravenous injection uh, with the hope that further testing with the IM uh, approach would be worthwhile as well. So um, what they did was they um, they used a, this large animal model using uh, swine. Um, they divided them in randomly into three groups uh, to receive a control group that got saline, a group that got the hydroxycobalamin, and then a third group that got the cobinamide. Um, and basically through the animal model provided uh, one minute of um, acute cyanide-induced apnea and then administered the one of those three um, quote-unquote antidotes to see what the response was. Um, and they, they did this one-minute apneic thing based on previous studies that said that this is a validated approach to acute cyanide toxicity. 
So they took 33 um, Yorkshire swine um, and they did kind of pre-testing pre uh, to kind of get some baseline uh, studies on each of them. Uh, you can see in the, in the first figure um, that each of the kind of pre up through the apneic event, there were very comparable um, baseline statistics for all of them that they felt were, were acceptable prior to actually starting um, the study. So they were continually monitoring all sorts of hemodynamics as well as uh, uh, just kind of the, the general state of the animal. Um, the animal was allowed to actually uh, breathe on its own so that they could mark exactly when the apneic event occurred so that they could be more accurate on the timing. And at that point, once that that setup was arranged, they provided uh, cyanide via potassium cyanide infusion. Um, waited, got to that one minute, uh, and then administered one of the three um, uh, interventions and then monitored them for a total of 60 minutes. Um, death was defined as a mean arterial pressure being less than 20 for greater than five minutes, and any animal that died during that 60 minute interval was watched for another 20 minutes just to make sure that there wasn't some sort of delayed effect that they were unaware of. So based on, on this study, their primary um, outcomes they were looking for was just the time it took to return to spontaneous breathing. Um, secondary uh, outcomes that they were measuring was just survival. Um, they also monitored all the baseline hemodynamics and labs to see what could be different between the different approaches. Um, and then uh, just kind of um, also obviously took note of which animals died prior to the end of the study. Um, they did also want to note that their control group, since there was a significant amount of the animals that did not make it to the end of the study, as far as secondary outcome measures, they just didn't account for them in the final tally as their data simply didn't exist as of a certain point. So the results, um, kind of the big takeaway was the fact that there was through all three groups before administration of the antidotes that includes the apneic period, that includes the pre-induction um, period, they were all statistically similar. Once they got them into the, into the actual um, cyanide-induced event, um, the return to spontaneous breathing um, was different from the antidotes versus the control groups. And between the antidote groups, it were actually quite similar response time, which of course was reassuring to them. Um, in both antidote groups, only one animal uh, of the 11 didn't make it to the end of the study. So that was for both groups, each of them had one. But in the control group, nine of them did, um, did not make it to the end of the study. Other than that, the antidote groups compared from that point on were basically the same. When it came to hemodynamic monitoring, like cardiac output um, and the, um, the oxygen saturation and the rest were all actually quite comparable. They did know that there were some like quantitative differences which they noted in the in their um, figures here in figure two, um, but that they, these were statistically not significant um, and they attempted to kind of look further into that as well. Um, other than that, the blood tests regarding lactate the bicarb and even the, the actual cyanide levels across all the groups were equivalent. Um, and at, for both of the, the treatment groups, it was they both got down to zero at the end. So any sort of difference in terms of at any independent point in time throughout that 60-minute measure, it was deemed that that was not a significant difference in terms of the pattern. Um, and the only thing that they, they did note that was notably odd was actually some of the changes in terms of the blood pressure and heart rate, which kind of got back to what you mentioned earlier about the nitrate consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so in the hydroxycobalamin group, they noticed that there was uh, actually a higher blood pressure, mean pressures in that. Um, it wasn't statistically significant. It was only recognized as being uh, quantitatively different. Um, and similarly, um, the hydroxycobalamin group had lower heart rate. And so they kind of were leaning on the, the idea that perhaps the cobinamide does have some sort of vasoactive, if not a direct effect, perhaps an indirect consequence of, it, of its administration. Um, the limitations to their study, um, which they, they did uh, admit, was the fact that, again, this is an animal model that cannot be used to necessarily predict how it would result in a human. However, this was the lar first large animal 
study that at least they were aware of, um, and so it's kind of a step in that direction. Um, they noted that the cyanide that they were using was intravascular, um, and so that doesn't reflect the standard, more common inhalational cyanide exposure that you would be worried about. And on top of that, it was potassium cyanide, so how much did the administration of potassium play into it? Um, they think that that is less of a confounding variable just because of the sheer concentration that they introduced wasn't necessarily enough to explain any sort of uh, difference that was observed. They did note that because they could only monitor for 60 minutes per their kind of study guidelines for the, the treatment of the, the subjects, um, that they don't know what would have happened, what like sort of long, longer term sequela could be, um, and they do propose that perhaps further studies future on could look at that. And then the, the biggest um, limitation that they noticed was the fact that it was not blinded. Um, that they did randomize the, uh, the subjects but did not themselves blind themselves to who was getting what. Um, they said that they were trying to measure it purely on objective criteria to limit any sort of subjective kind of interpretation, but still that was of note. At the end, kind of their, their overall results conclusion was that cobinamide appears to be very similar to the hydroxycobalamin. It's not necessarily superior, but because its efficacy is comparable and because there didn't seem to be any sort of major negative effects that they noticed through the monitoring of these, um, these 33 pigs, um, they, they think that it, should, it, can, it warrants further investigation, particularly with the concept that uh, cobinamide can be administered intramuscularly um, and thus may be useful. Um, and so they, their next steps would basically be they would propose that this, this study would warrant um, further follow-up uh, investigating its alternative route of administration. All right, uh, nice. Yeah, I think the, you know, the other subtle difference which they kind of uh, address is that the milligram per kilogram amount is, is different because, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but that cobinamide has two binding sites but it actually turns out that cabinamide probably is, um, on a milligram per kilogram basis, about one-fifth is needed to produce the same effect. And so it's more than just the number of binding sites for cyanide or sulfide. It also has to do with this affinity coefficient that it binds better and more, more uh, uh, tightly. Um, so the, ultimately what they want to do is they want to be able to create an IM auto-injector mm -hmm. that has four cc's of fluid total which is the max you can give into an IM injection, as opposed to what we give now, hydroxycobalamin is like 250 cc bottles of, you know, the fluid. Um, so there's slowly, this has been going on for almost a decade of research before you can bring this drug to market, slowly stepwise moving up the how we use it, refine the product, does it have sulfites and nitrates on its co as a co-binding, and uh, one more or less thing on the cyanide we'll talk about, uh, which approaches maybe a, a closer model is if someone just orally took cyanide poisoning, have a little bit of longer window of opportunity to treat them. Most of these animals got sick with IV within minutes, and then realistically, you know, you couldn't treat someone that fast, even if they're sitting in front of you in the emergency department. So what if someone took oral cyanide for whatever self-harm reason? Could we use one of these antidotes to save them? Uh, Lauren, tell us about that one. Sure. So this is a uh, paper entitled The Vitamin B12 Analog Cabinamide is an Effective Antidote for Oral Cyanide Poisoning, published by Lee et al. in the Journal of Medical Toxicology in 2016. And they uh, get into exactly what Zane was talking about, so refining our product and also adding another variable, which is um, alkalinization. They have a similar introduction that we've already been over several times with the other papers. What do we do for massive doses? Um, what about oral exposure? They go over the three classes of agents that we discussed with the pediatric paper and that hemoglobin sulfur donors. And um, they ended up using a mouse model for their study. So one of the things that they discussed with cobinamide is that cobinamide uh, binding cyanide is pH dependent. Um, and a pH greater than four is required for effective binding. And when we're speaking about oral ingestions, we, you know, the pH of the stomach is actually quite low. And so in order for uh, cobinamide to be effective, you're gonna have to introduce some sort of alkalinization <coughs> if you want it to be able to bind. Um, 
Again, they also go into a little bit more mechanism of how cyanide would be absorbed in the stomach. And so when cyanide is introduced into the stomach, it causes hydrogen cyanide gas. Um, but if it is in a alkaline environment, it is more likely to be a cyanide ion, which is less readily absorbed across the mucosa than something that is not ionized. So there was this, as they were considering these effects of pH on their model, um, they realized that perhaps for an oral ingestion model where you're battling absorption based on a polar and nonpolar ionized substance, that alkalinization alone may actually provide some benefit by decreasing the absorption of the ion. So uh, they had a, their hypothesis for the paper was that by raising gastric pH, um, this will delay the rate of cyanide absorption, and then they were going to study two separate formulations of cobinamide, which is dinitrocobinamide and aquahydroxy aquohydroxicobenamide. <laughs> so they took New Zealand white male pathogen-free rabbits in their study. I'm sorry, I said it was mice, but this was rabbits. Um, they were intubated. They used um, isoflurane for sedation and then passed an NG tube in order to administer their substances. They used a central line to provide measurements and then survivors uh, were a priori defined as animals that survived 90 minutes post the cyanide administration, and those that did not survive were obviously non-survivors. So they administered, um, they had five groups in their study of the rabbits. The first was the cyanide control, and these um, animals received a fluid volume of 10 mils, and then all the rest of the animals in the other groups um, of note uh, received double that volume of fluid. So in group two, cyanide was given and then a single dose of sodium bicarbonate. In group C, three, there was a sandwich, so bicarb, cyanide, bicarb. In group four, it was cyanide and then dinitrocobinamide with the bicarb as well. Um, so every study, every experimental group had the sodium bicarb, and then in group five, it was cyanide with aquahydroxycobinamide um, with the bicarb. And uh, then they measured things that they felt like could give ideas to their study about how much the cyanide is being absorbed or processed. So they measured thiocyanate. They measured the red blood cell concentration of cyanide um, and cobinamide concentration. So um, as expected, every all the rabbits in group one died quite quickly uh, with an average of, I believe it was about three minutes. Um, and then in what they did find is by administering the bicarb did actually extend the length of time to death. So in group two, when they just gave the single bicarb, the time of death was 16 minutes, and that is significant increase from the three minutes in the first group. And then with the double dose of bicarbonate, the sandwich effect, they had a 20 minute survival time. And then there was also um, a significant amount, uh, but all those animals died by the end of the study period. And then in uh, the cobinamide arms, there were actually animals that did survive the entire 90 minutes. In group four, with the dinitrocobinamide, half the animals survived. And then the aquahydroxycobinamide, four of the six animals survived. They add an asterisk here that they say that the animals who died in that last group um, died within 10 minutes, which is actually even faster than the alkalinization arms. And so they theorized actually within the results section instead of placing it in discussion that perhaps there was inadequate alkalinization of these animals and thus kind of surreptitiously suggesting that perhaps all of these animals would have survived this arm if they had been appropriately. But they don't say that outright and that's very reasonable of them. Um, <coughs> so the animals, uh, that's pretty much it here for the death. And then they did note in some of their hemodynamic monitoring that the animals who in, um, in group four who see, received the dinitrocobinamide actually had a significantly uh, a gradual decrease in their blood pressure that was more gradual than the onset of the cyanide toxicity that they would see in the other groups. And they supposed that as the dose of dinitrocobinamide or the nitrogen was being absorbed systematically or systemically that this was decreasing the blood pressure of the animals. And then in the hydroxocobinamide group, um, they did not see that decrease in the blood pressure. And um, those are the most significant outcomes. They do the red blood cell cyanide concentration, which 
is always increasing, but it increased less in the animals that survived. They looked at the cobinamide concentration um, in the animals afterwards. They found that dinitrocobinamide was absorbed faster in that group. And um, those are the major things. Gastric alkalinization prolonged survival time, but obviously did not was not an antidote and wouldn't recover the animals. And then that the animals who received the cobinamide um, products uh, had survival and improved hemodynamics comparatively to the control. Yeah, no, nice. I mean, the one thing I take away one extra sort of side takeaway from this that it can maybe use right away because this product's not available is that giving oral bicarb seemed to like buy you an extra 10-15 mm. minutes to do whatever else you need to do whether it's starve an IV to give hydroxycobalamin which is the current standard of care or eventually to maybe get an IM dose of uh, cobinamide. Um, so we don't currently do that now. Of course we don't see a lot of oral cyanide ingestions but there certainly have been several out there, but this certainly seems uh, easy, non-toxic, you know, pr provided the patient's not going to aspirate while you're trying to get them to drink a canamp of bicarb for an ambulance if they're coding. Obviously, that needs to stop and airway and everything else needs to, needs to take precedence. Um, but um, they very nicely showed that uh, the two uh, cobinamide uh, derivatives, the dinitrocobinamide, which seems to be the one that they're moving forward, as an IM injection, because uh, it doesn't cause any limb issues, but may cause some vasodilatation due to the nitrite part of it, versus the aqua component, which is really very similar to hydroxycobalamin, which is an OH group around the cobalt in the middle. Um, they use this sort of interesting uh, spec digital optical spectroscopy, which one or two of the other studies used which helps sort out whether there's oxyhemoglobin or deoxyhemoglobin in the tissue and um, as one more proof of concept that it indeed helps improve the oxyhemoglobin as well. So just one more layer of scientific technique that they added on there. But I think again pretty much shows that cobinamide by whether you take cyanide oral or inhalation or peritoneal obviously which is not going to happen. Um, you know, you can reverse it with this new agent, cobinamide. Um, you would think that there's probably enough there to go to the FDA to approve it at least for that first indication. I don't know where it sits right now. I tried to look this up. But uh, however, they, because cyanide works very similar to other molecular poisons at the cytochrome oxidase, um, about the same time that several of these studies were being done, there was a trend emerging of suicides with hydrogen sulfide, which is a rare industrial gas, but had uh, essentially been a big issue for both poison centers here and actually in Japan where it first started. So to give us a little bit of background on that, we have Ryan tell us about um, a study on this as a suicide trend. Right, yes, this is a multi-center retrospective study on a suicide trend using hydrogen sulfide in Japan. Um, it's a little bit more historical context. Uh, suicide is a significant public health concern in Japan, and folks will get um, information on like how to painlessly commit suicide from websites and suicide forums. So in 2007, a method using um, readily commercially available um, products, uh, a description came out on, on a website in 2007 for how to commit suicide using hydrogen sulfide gas by mixing some of these products. This is a toilet bowl cleaner that contains 9.5% hydrogen chloride. Uh, a liquid bath essence that contains potassium sulfide and uh, an agricultural insecticide that contains calcium polysulfide. And by mixing um, some of these chemicals, hydrogen chloride would react with calcium polysulfide, uh, would generate hydrogen sulfide gas. Uh, alternatively, some folks were also um, just going straight to drinking the agricultural insecticide, uh, generating um, hydrogen sulfide by mixing that calcium polysulfide to the hydrogen chloride that was inside their stomachs. Uh, really sad thing to read about, but it did give this group in Japan the opportunity to study um, a lot of these patients who um, became in with hydrogen sulfide poisoning. Uh, the first recorded death, according to like the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare, um, came in around like 2006. 
uh, like seven deaths, and then around by 2008 there were 1,027 deaths right. from hydrogen sulfide poisoning. They start to trend down. This um, this paper encompasses uh, 07 to, to 2011 data. The way that they did this by, was by sending a letter to 277 emergency facilities with employees who are members of the Japanese Society of Clinical Toxicology, um, just requesting data collection. Uh, 47 of those facilities agreed to collaborate, so they ended up with a panel of um, 156 patients who were included. Um, they got 165, as I mentioned befo before. Um, they excluded those who, had dr who drank the um, lime sulfur agricultural agents so that um, they were just studying uh, folks who were inhaling hydrogen sulfide. Most of these, um, uh, most of these people would inhale inside of a car or inside of a room, some confined space. If you get a concentrated amount of hydrogen sulfide, that bears relevance um, because secondary exposure is uh, a real concern with this population. Um, of that group, that uh, of 156 patients that were studied here. 92 of them were actually suicide attempters, and, and 64 were secondary injuries. Um, this would be responders. 16 of them were, were responders, including police officers. 39 were family members, mm -hmm. um, and nine others were like including residents, guests. So just kind of being around um, or around the same area was enough to send some of these folks to the hospital. Um, before we get too far, I'll just say that none of those secondary exposures died. Um, so the the big question here was uh, what what would work to um, save people, and, and most of what was done interventionally were um, nitrites, amyl nitrite and sodium nitrite. Um, a lot of these cases were kind of lost at the scene. Uh, 48 patients were in cardiopulmonary arrest at the scene, and none of them survived. Um, of that group, seven were treated with either amyl nitrite or sodium nitrite, and one got five grams of hydroxycobalamin. Um, but uh, 44 of those patients were not under uh, cardiopulmonary arrest of the scene, so um, they got sent to a hospital, and uh, 19 of that group got treated with nitrites, and 25 were not. Um, so just to bear in mind before I share the results of this, this is, is a retrospective study. You know, they're, um, the people who are going to get the most aggressive treatment are the ones who are displaying the most aggressive symptoms. Um, so. Patients in the nitrite group were more seriously ill, they had worse uh, Glasgow coma scale scores um, and lactic acidosis. So, so outcomes were actually significantly worse in the nitrite group than the non-nitrite group. Um, all patients in the non-nitrite group made a complete recovery. Um, there were five deaths in the nitrite group and 14 survivals. Uh, only nine of those were considered complete recovery with five of them having residual symptoms. Um, looks like there was uh, the, these residual symptoms took the form of like a uh, prolonged disturbance of consciousness in a couple of them, impaired short-term memory in one patient, uh, diffuse ST elevation on EKG on hospital day two, mild ST elevation. So they're sort of a, 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 a random, seemingly random assortment of um, persisting symptoms in that residual symptom category. Um, the, see the, um, the other consideration that this paper says is that uh, the folks who ended up getting these nitrites actually got them quite late. So um, on average, the timing of administration of nitrites was 24 minutes after hitting the hospital doors for the amyl nitrite group and 42.7 minutes in the sodium nitrite group. And the uh, methemoglobin concentrations that were recorded in these patients were pretty low at 13.3. As we kind of discussed before, um, methemoglobin is formed with the administration of nitrites in this situation, so that's kind of how you um, can track how, uh, how how much of this uh, reaction is actually taking place. Um, to give a, like an, another further background on how lethal this mixture was, uh, an experimental study was done where they mixed 0.1 milliliters of sun bullets, one of those cleaning products, um, and uh, HAP, one of the other ones in that list um, in a 560 milliliter flask and it generated 9,950 parts per million of hydrogen sulfide. So the, so the lethal concentration is over 750 parts per million. So this is um, obviously enough to, to cause lots of deaths. Um, the, um, that's, that's all that, that, that I really have for this paper. Um, 
there they mentioned you know a few of the changes that were made to first responder protocols um, given this rash of deaths and um, all the secondary exposures. So first responders in Japan now um, have very good protocols for approaching uh, potential gas exposures uh, upwind using level B protections for like respiration and um, transporting patients with all the windows down uh, in the ambulance itself. Um, study admits that it's not sufficient for establishing the efficacy of the nitrite group for really evaluating the efficacy of nitrites because it's really only the seriously ill patients who are getting it and you know therefore it actually looks like it wasn't doing that well. But um, yeah, that's all I have for this statement. Yeah, this was uh, a you know, horrible public health uh, tragedy in Japan and it kind of bled over to the U.S. and North America and probably elsewhere. Um, it usually it was called car suicides. These people would go into the car with these two or three products in a plastic bucket or um, an old uh, soda bottle and just shake it up and close the windows. And some of them would put up a, a sign on their window that said, do not open the door, or someone would just say HS or something like that. We had a case where they actually mixed up cyanide in a car and we got a call from a first responder. They said, we're, we're standing outside the car where there appears to be a dead body inside. What does CN mean? Um, you know, which, you know, we tell what it was, but uh, to get dressed up in level B protective gear is to put on a scuba gear and a Tyvek suit over it and be, that takes a few minutes, so by the time you open the door and get them out, and you can't usually do dexterous manipulation with your gloves on, um, you can't start an IV or do anything. So an IM auto injector in a scenario like that would, would go quite a long way to resuscitating um, these folks. So, although we tried the old cyanide antidote, and I tried for this, I don't think there's any efficacy of cases where people were sick or moribund where that actually worked in the literature. Um, although they kept giving it, obviously, in the study and tried to make some sense out of it. Um, but uh, the people who were working on covidamide started saying, hey, maybe we can use this to use it in sulfide, and that's where all our, all our new papers are going to come from. So first up on the sulfide side of things is uh, Adam. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ian. Uh, so the article I'm going to tell you about is entitled, The Vitamin B12 Analog Cobinamide is an Effective Hydrogen Sulfide Antidote in a Lethal Rabbit Model. This is by Brenner and others, published in 2014 in Clinical Toxicology. Uh, so this article essentially looks at uh, various a antidotes in, uh, given by various routes uh, for hydrogen sulfide poisoning. Uh, now of note, they were actually not using hydrogen sulfide but sodium hydrosulfide, which is a sodium analog of the drug, and that's just because it's a lot easier to control the dose and, and administration, but it's thought to have the same mechanism of toxicity, which is inhibition of cytochrome C oxidase. So what they did was they took um, uh, New Zealand white rabbits, they anesthetized them and then they divided them into six groups. Uh, they gave all six groups of rabbits, which contained about six to nine rabbits per group, uh, three milligrams of sodium um, hydrosulfide per minute until either death or until a maximum dose of 270 milligrams. Uh, they then gave each group a different um, antidote or control. So the first was the control group, which got normal saline. The second group got hydroxocobalamin, which is uh, the <coughs> antidote of choice for cyanide poisoning, and is readily available on most uh, ambulances, or many ambulances, I should say. Group three was intravenous aqua hydroxocobinamide. Group four was intravenous sulfidocobinamide. Group five was intramuscular sulfidocobinamide. And group six was intramuscular dinitrocobinamide. So what they essentially did was uh, they monitored hemodynamic parameters, uh, blood pressure. They also used um, essentially spectroscopy, uh, which was a functionally a pulse oximetry to measure oxygen saturation of hemoglobin. Uh, the idea being that as you induce uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, you're not going to uh, extract oxygen from the bloodstream and the oxygen uh, bound to hemoglobin should not drop as normal because the mitochondria are not using it. Um, so what they then measured was what was the dose of the uh, poison required to kill the rabbit and essentially what happened. So the most kind of telltale graph on this uh, 
sorry, chart here is uh, Table 1, which I think summarizes the most important findings here. So uh, as would be expected, the control group, um, all six rabbits died, and this gave a sense of what is the dose expected to kill this rabbit, and that was an average dose of 93.8 milligrams uh, with a range of 67 to 103, 123 milligrams. So the IV hydroxocobalamin, which is not really expected to be an antidote for this particular poison, uh, had very similar characteristics. Uh, the average uh, dose of the poison was 121 rather than 93.8, so very similar, and the range was 54 to 153. So again, very similar and very overlapping. Um, however, the potential antidotes had uh, some pretty interesting results. So the intravenous aqua hydroxocobinamide uh, that raised uh, the uh, average dose of the poison from 93.8 to 261.5, so a pretty marked increase in the amount of um, poison tolerated. And the range was 252 to 270. What that means is that the lowest dose needed to kill a rabbit was greater than the highest uh, dose without the antidote, which is interesting. Additionally, in this group, uh, five out of six of the rabbits survived uh, to that maximum administered dose of 270, whereas in all five other groups, all rabbits died before reaching that uh, maximum dose. Um, in the other groups, uh, the IV sulfidocobinamide, uh, that had an average dose of 170 with a range of 138 to 195. And then interestingly for us is the intramuscular uh, antidotes. So the IM sulfidocobinamide had an average dose of 133 with a range of 114 to 144. And the uh, IM dinitrocobinamide had uh, an average dose of 165 with a range of 87, which is on the low side, all the way up to 267. Um, the p-values for all of those, all four, were as low as 0.01, all the way up to 0.0001, that's three zeros, for the IV aqua hydroxocobinamide. Okay. So uh, this is um, other other parameters that they measured were kind of consistent with what you'd expect. So for example, the uh, especially the aqua hydroxocobinamide showed um, a more gentle decline in blood pressure as the rabbits were being poisoned rather than a precipitous drop. But of course, there still was a drop, um, and uh, all rabbits were eventually, well, rabbits eventually did die. Um, so what we can kind of take from this, and the conclusions were appropriately tailored for the, for the study. Obviously this was an animal model, um, but, uh, and we're using uh, kind of a sodium analog rather than the true hydrogen sulfide, sulfide excuse me. Um, so a slightly different compound, but presumably the same mechanism. Um, and it was found that the cobinamide, uh, all of the cobinamide antidotes, regardless of exact formulation or root, were protective, um, which I think does open the door to this uh, potential antidote in humans. Yeah, I mean, and they, they mentioned, you know, as opposed to the cyanide um, model, where the, a couple of small animal models that are able to use an inhalation model, it's like way too dangerous to use an inhalation model of hydrogen sulfide, so we have to accept the fact that this intravenous formulation produces the same level of toxicity because, as they showed, the changes in oxygen saturation mm -hmm. match what they would expect with the molecular poison at the cytochrome uh, oxidase uh, part of the electron transport chain. So again, the, the leading, I don't know if it's the leading, but one of the, of the molecular subtypes that seem to be the emerging one is this dinitrocobinamide uh, but there are obviously two or three other analogs. So, again, as the Animal Efficacy Act states that you can't just use small animal models of mice and rabbits, you have to use a swine model or a large animal model somewhere along the line. I guess the next step in proof of concept is to do that. So, um, again, back to Lauren, if you can let us know how that turned out. Sure, so this was just as Dan said at a line model. And this study was titled Efficacy of Intravenous Cobinamide versus Hydroxycobalamin or Saline for Treatment of Severe Hydrogen Sulfide Toxicity in a Swine Sus Scruffa Model. This is by uh, Bev Barta et al. in um, 
I'm not sure actually which paper this is because mine uh, doesn't say the title. So they talk about all the same things we talked about before mentioning the suicide victims and with hydrogen sulfide. I think it's also important to note that hydrogen sulfide is also sometimes found in industrial accidents. It can also accumulate at the bottom of grain silos and in sewer gas as well. And you'll have people who see their friends change, they go in afterwards, fall down at the scene. So again, very rapid. And, you, and, and when it's encountered um, in this manner, it's often an inhalational model. But again, just as we mentioned, it's very dangerous to do a lab study where you're exposing your colleagues to hydrogen sulfide. So this was an ingestion model as well. And the hypothesis for the study that is that IV cobinamide would be more effective than IV hydroxycobalamin or saline, of course, in reversing the effects of potentially survivable hydrogen sulfide toxicity. Um, similar to the last group, they used an, um, the sodium uh, type of the hydrogen. They did not use a gas. Um, they used female Yorkshire swine, and in these three different groups, they had eight pigs each. They sedated them with ketamine, intubated them with isoflurane, um, had a number of hemodynamic monitors, including central lines, arterial lines, um, and took very, very thorough um, monitoring systems when they were um, watching these animals the whole time with also frequent blood draws to measure a number of different things, anywhere from uh, blood gases to um, even uh, they measured cytokines in the study as well, I think just to try and get as many um, data points as they could. They also measured urine thiosulfate, so the excretion product that you get from the sulfide. So you use sodium high uh, hydrosulfide infusion, um, and then it was very similar to the other study. So fuse them for 1.5 minutes. Uh, so they infuse them with the hydrogen sulfide until there was apnea then kept infusing the hydrogen sulfide for, but then would slowly decrease it over time um, for, and then kept them on a very small amount of hydrogen sulfide throughout the entire study, which I think is important is that they didn't just give them one dose, but they were continually giving it to them while they were trying to give these other interventions. Um, what they were measuring was survival time, as well as time to spontaneous ventilation as the primary outcomes, and then of course like, um, their MAPS, systemic vascular resistance, heart rate, um, hemodynamic monitors were their, were their secondary outcomes, and then they looked at like cytokines as well. So interesting outcome for this is that um, all the animals who received the uh, cobinamide survived, all of them, to the end of the study, which was up to 60-minute observation period, whereas all the animals in the saline and in the hydroxycobalamin uh, died within, I think the max was 15 minutes, but the average was about 10 minutes, so all of them universally um, uh, died. Um, and, then the, and then they looked at hemodynamic monitors, like, you know, the blood pressure was better, and uh, it pretty much, just similar to the swine model that Keahi had, is that the only animals that they could get these other outcome measures in were the surviving pigs. So we couldn't really compare like the, um, the hydroxycobalamin, unfortunately, to these other products. And then, uh, yeah. Oh, and then uh, mean time to spontaneous ventilation. So that was defined as taking six breaths was this spontaneous ventilation. None of the animals in the other two, in the control or in the hydroxycobalamin group, um, had spontaneous ventilation, but in this uh, cobinamide group, they had spontaneous respiration at an average of three minutes, which is actually pretty early on. Um, that was the main outcome for them. Then they make little comments on, you know, TNF-alpha was very high in the, in the control group who only got saline. So a lot of this was very intuitive um, with their, you know, blood pressure was very bad in the patients who did not get, like, cobinamide. Um, so I think the main outcome here was just uh, very interesting that all the animals who got cobinamide survived. Yeah, I mean, it very nicely took it to the next step. Um, it showed like two important things. This one, the hydroxycobalamin, which works for cyanide, if you get it in time, didn't really ver do very well here. It was very similar to their saline control, but the IM um, cobinamide that they used seemed to be almost 100% effective in the model that they created. Um, 
as in each time they do this kind of study, they kind of throw in a new nuanced layer, and this one they threw in the whole cytochrome cascade to show maybe the mechanistic uh, aspect of the disease. What really happens is you have a pro-inflammatory uh, surge that is part and parcel of the sort of cellular death response that occurs with sulfide. Um, so, you know, again, a very elegant study in a large animal model, but it was using intravenous cobinamide to take it to like the final step in what we're leading up to is what would happen if we try to create um, a model which really reflects what might happen in the real world is someone gets exposed and you can get to them with an IM auto-injector, is that going to work? So for that paper, Adrian. Yeah, so this is uh, the exact same group that published the previous study that Loren uh, discussed. Um, and again, intramuscular cobinamide versus saline for treatment of severe hydrogen sulfide toxicity in swine. Um, you know, we talked a, a little bit, of, a lot actually, about how we really just want um, to use an intramuscular injection because in those mass casualty situations, we want to give something that can be administered very, very quickly and without much training. Um, so in this study, essentially they're looking at that, the efficacy of intramuscular cobinamide to treat hydrogen sulfide poisoning. So the um, 11 swine were involved. Again, they were sedated, intubated. All those parameters were measured with um, you know, central venous access. And they were allowed to stabilize for about 10 minutes after all that instrumentation. And then they were weaned slightly off of their anesthesia so that they could spontaneously ventilate. Um, after they were spontaneously ventilating, they were then delivered this intravenous infusion. The methods are very similar to what um, Loren described. They got the initial infusion, and then once they got, were apneic, which was over 30 seconds of no breathing, or they had a systolic blood pressure less than 75, they then, um, uh, they then uh, injected the animals in the study group in, with intramuscular cobinamide, 4 megs per keg, or saline, and again, they monitored them for 60 minutes post-treatment or until death, which was defined as a map less than 30 for 10 minutes. Again, the um, once they uh, got to that trigger that was apnea or um, hypotension, they then uh, weaned down on the infusion of this um, the sodium hyd hydrosulfide, uh, and they went down for about 1.5 minutes, and then they brought it down even more. Um, for about 10 more minutes and then they discontinued it. So the primary outcome here was survival. And uh, they, again, looked at all those secondary parameters we've been discussing the entire time, all those cardiovascular, um, respiratory, biochemical parameters. Um, they, again, found no difference uh, in the dose or like the time required for the sodium hydrosulfide to produce apnea among the groups or hypotension. Um, again, just as Lorenz's uh, paper showed, all the animals that were treated with the cobinamide survived through the 60-minute period, whereas none of the animals in the control group, the saline group, survived past 20 minutes. Uh, the mean survival time was 10 minutes, plus or minus 5 minutes. Um, and you can see that in figure 1, Kaplan-Meier curve. So, um, and in those animals, they looked at those who, you know, the trigger was apnea, and they looked at those, the trigger was hypotension. In that um, apnea group, the mean time to spontaneous ventilations, again, similar to Lorenz, three minutes, plus or minus one minute, in those cobinamide-treated animals. And then for those who had, the trigger was hypotension, um, the mean time to return to their baseline systolic blood pressure was five minutes. Um, so figure two just looks at all those secondary parameters that we've been discussing the entire time. Essentially, the animals that were in the cobinamide group, they were recovering, and the other ones all uh, just continued to deteriorate until they were dead. So again, discussion, they talk about how um, their prior study showed kind of the exact same results, and they just wanted to see if the intramuscular cobinamide could be as successful. Uh, and that's what they showed. Um, again, they talk a little bit about kind of the background and that it's important to do it in these larger animals. 
um, and the importance of having an intramuscular antidote, especially in the setting of hydrogen sulfide toxicity, given the rapidity of you know toxicity and just setting of toxicity. All the limitations that kind of Loren discussed are pretty much the same. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, the stepwise that we've gone through with all the articles show that, you know, we didn't even review all the basic science lab petri dish models that led up to the small animal models, led up to the large animal models, led up ultimately to the IM preparation, led up to the specific dinitrocritabinamide as the best of the reagents available. I don't know where this stands. I tried to look into it. I don't know if the Department of Defense or Homeland Security or anybody else has developed this and is sort of ha hanging on to it, whether the FDA is looking for it. Uh, obviously, there's rules, roles for this, both in defensive uh, military uses, but also in mass casualty and, um, like I said, there's industrial accidents, especially the fracking releases a lot of sulfides where this could be an industrial accident or suicide. So it's got pre-hospital and hospital uses. We don't know what the time window is, but all these studies suggest that the time window to treat is short on the order of minutes, which is why I am at the scene antidote, much like we have AEDs and now in some emergency things stop the bleed uh, packets in um, emergency settings. You would wonder if this was a fracking plant or industrial plant, but they would put these sort of auto injectors in there for uh, an accident that would occur. Um, whether they be hanging up elsewhere, it's hard to say. I think it's a promising antidote. Um, its advantages, it's IM, it's got two binding sites, it's got a higher affinity. It seems to have very little intrinsic toxicity. Only one article sort of alluded to the fact that it's also reddish pink, like hydroxycobalamin is, but I haven't heard anything described whether these pinks, pigs or animal serum turns bright pink like it does in humans when we give humans hydroxycobalamin. It's a short uh, term risk of not being able to do labs on those folks due to the colorimetric uh, determinations being um, you know, ruined by essentially turning your serum pink. But again, perhaps a new antidote within the next few years that's on the horizon, although again, they've been studying this for years, but they also were looking at hydroxycobalamin for close to 20 years before it ultimately got approved. If you go back to the original studies with the Paris Fire Department from the 80s, but until it was finally approved in you know, the last several years. So any other comments from ever anyone or questions? If not, we'll see everyone next time when we reconvene for Journal Club. Thank you all.